This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right. Uh, good everything. Greetings and salutations, Ank Ujab, Seneb, and all of the things that we say to one another in love, brothers yeah. and sisters and others. All right. So, okay, guys. <laughs> and who, the, who are these others? You know, like we are. Others um, who don't see us as brothers and sisters. That's yeah, good. yeah, others. Uh, how how art thou? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm good. I was sharing with you that my mom and uh, her husband are reading The Coming. And uh, so they're talking to me about it. And I was like, Daniel Black's book? And they're like, yeah, we heard him on your radio show. There's no question. Let me, let me get my, uh, I got the app up. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How they, they are really. Uh, oh, so, you know, her husband's 83, 84. And he's like, it takes me back to a time, you know, and he, and they're talking to me about it. And I'm like, you know, cause he used to share crop, you know, and he hated it back in, you know, when he was growing up. And and just the 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 you know coming together and then the things we forgot and so they're talking to me and I was like well so y'all sharing a book and she was I was like how y'all sharing a book she said well he put it down I pick it up and then when I put it down he pick it up I was like well that's uh that's lovely that's yeah. that's the way they do it that's the way you're supposed to do it and then you talk about it and then they talk to you yeah so I, I, you know i don't push my stuff on people you know i'm not I'm like y'all gotta come in the class you gotta you know if, it, if, if people find things when they find them however they find them um i'm gonna do my thing i'm always do my thing and it's got to be funky but uh <laughs> <laughs> what's whenever it is whenever it is but you know i mean i feel like this this space that we're in people come to it when they come to it and there should be no pressure i know there's some nubians like trying to get their family members it's all right. You know, when they find it, when they get it, they'll get it or they won't. But we got to continue to be on our journey. We can't expend energy trying to shake people into consciousness or shake people into righteousness or shake people into their own freedom. They'll get it or they won't. Or they'll be like Harry Tubman's brothers and be like, it's too tough out here being free. And we got to go back to massive when we get, it. you know, no, no, you don't know. And it's all right. No judgment either way. If you want to go back to uh, enslavement, that's your business. Um, but we're going to be free over here. So, uh, I was watching the Bill, um, Bill Russell legend, um, documentary on Netflix. And, I, I was saying yesterday, uh, I was back in the studio at Sirius XM with a, a whole bunch of people. Shout out to Dante Lamont, Joyelle, look, Jamila T Davis. It was like the whole studio was crowded and I was freaking out. Cause I was like the air. Is like you, can, can we pause for five seconds and just recognize that this is the first time in almost three years yeah it that was is a major thing so we sit we, we we we're basking in that energy and sending you and reflecting all that love because that is a huge step in the new means <laughs> no question so you were in man yeah, I, yeah i'm still recovering you know it's like it is it's a lot sensory overload i forgot how to commute like I forgot how to drive. Like Isn't it something in the world, just your brain just read. Like, wait a minute, do I? Is this the exit? Right. Wait, do I? <laughs> wait, I didn't get gas. Wait, what am I doing? Wow. You know, I could go for like three weeks or to take a gas. I don't go nowhere. So it was it was a lot, but um, it, the energy was was different. Definitely, I think the people uh, felt it. You know, there's something about banging up against other folk. You know, spiritually, that produces you know pheromones and all kinds of you know creative juices and energy um and as much like 
what what happens here virtually, we're able to manifest it. I don't know how, but we we transcend the the electrical uh, currents to get mm-hmm. the same thing. So I love it. I love yeah, it. But that studio is different. I mean, those times I came with you that first time with Aju, and then coming back, it is a let. You got me thinking. Hmm, can I get up here on a Friday? Because I love the city, but I mean, I haven't been. I mean. You on a Friday? You on a Friday? That could ruin your career, Doctor Carr. I don't know. No, 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 no. No, wait. This <laughs> I don't have a career. We have callings. Right? I don't know. I don't know. You can get canceled. Mess around with me on Ain't a Friday. Getting canceled. <laughs> oh, that's food. It's Friday. Right. Hey, look, look, look. It, look, I, look. It reminds me of the time when we were in Detroit for the African World Festival, and we were there for a meeting of uh, I forget what the meeting was. Oh, it was National Black United Front? This is almost thirty years ago. We walking down the street in the in the uh, Detroit Arts Festival. Myself and Anderson Thompson, the late Anderson Thompson ancestor, we going one way, everybody going this way. And coming this way, we could just see this black man coming down the middle of the walk. And all, Detroit, huge art festival. Everybody knows from Detroit. You just see people parting. And as we walking, he's getting closer and people just parting like the Red Sea. Finally, he gets close enough for us to hear. And he's like, see, all y'all crazy as hell. They they killing black people. Farrakhan is right. Oh, the hell. And he just passed by us. Didn't even see Kevin and everybody parting. We got past that. Thompson looked at me and said, "You know what's crazy? He the only sane one out here." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I'm just saying that to say, "What up, though? Anybody getting canceled? We the only sane ones out here." <laughs> oh man, no, <laughs> not foolishness. In other words, <laughs> yes. You know, I, I think about you know all of the things we do through just doing it without any thought. Um, That's right. And you know, I wanted to bring up the Russell because you. You know, this week is Super Bowl, which I'm not watching. I don't care. So we're not going to talk about it. You know, that hurts. I mean, as a guy who lived in Philly about almost 20 years and adopted Philadelphia, this is going to be the second one day in that I didn't see a down of. But, you know. <laughs> but next week is the NBA uh, All-Star Game. And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of things with the book, Bill Russell. First of all, I love documentaries when people are still alive. So they get to select the people who get to talk for them and they get to talk for themselves. Uh, even though he made transition last year, this documentary was obviously done while he was still breathing on this side of the earth. And um, the relationship between uh, Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, I always thought was adversarial. But I learned in this documentary that they were not just friends. I mean, his Wilt Chamberlain's mama, they would eat Thanksgiving dinner together like they yeah. were really good and it reminds me of you know we are in this versus mentality where we're, we're constantly trying to you know who's the best and the top five this one's better you know and we're always doing that that clash thing which is not germane to us africans it's not it's not nope. who we, are. Yeah. we can celebrate all of the things we can be great everybody can be great some people can be great some others not but we don't have to do this this person versus that person we can compete nope. and still get off the court love each other and I feel like we need to do more of that. So that's why I just wanted to sit in that for a second. No, well, that's the, we have to sit in it. It, 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 it. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to watch it. I'm looking forward to watching it. And I'm glad it, that you're saying what you're saying, because that's going to drive me to watch it that much quicker. Did, was it the story? Where, I know one of them used to go pick up the other one. I think Chamberlain used to get pick up Bill. Yeah. And his mama would let him eat there and take a nap. This is before they play. <laughs> he would stay at Chamberlain's house before the games. Yes. Like, about think about uh you know oppression and Jim Crow and not having safe places and there being just a handful of people is like us in corporate America and yet we rival each other as opposed to going hmm ain't but two of us in this whole corporation we better you know they they could think we're rivals but behind closed doors we need to be eating together and plotting against 
all of the things that are blocking us from getting getting to our greatness. No question. Yeah. Well, Batoga just brought it up in the chat, says uh, who we are to each other. That is a great display of governance because it's those sports writers, it's the social structure that want to make them enemies when in fact, no, who we are to each other, your mama know the, knows the challenges of raising a seven-footer. So you come on, Emai, we got a couch you can stretch out on. But that's who we are to each other. And meanwhile, they go to the Dana's Celtics versus the Warriors versus the Six. I remember when Alan Iverson used to come to press conferences and he would have a Bill Russell jersey on and the Philly sports writers would kill him. But you don't understand, the man is paying tribute to Bill Russell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or you, you're a sixer. Why you have on it? No, that's a social structure thing. He going to give his whole heart to the city of Philadelphia and nobody who knew him and knows him when he played thought any different. Why do you think he didn't go out there and try to kill the Celtics? But this ain't about the Celtics. This man paved the way for me. That's why I'm sitting here in this jerk. And they wanted him to take it off. Nah, nah <laughs> that's really something, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I got to watch this. <laughs> yeah. The first time I ran into Bill Russell was in was mm. Isabella, Isabella Wilkinson's, not physically, Isabella Wilkinson's The Warmth of Other Sons. And that book, which um could use yeah you know, uh, let me not stop okay no that no, book, no. We, we we honest we ain't beating up nobody there, there no, are no, many no, no, no. great book yeah. to me could have been pared down or put into two parts or whatever but you know this is just mm -hmm. me reading and writing but i was like you know the great migration told through the stories of the doctor that came from texas and bill russell's family you know, open my eyes and, and and they deal with this in the documentary too, you know, how he went from, you know, all black segregated sharecropping town to, you know, this place where he was the other and looked upon very differently in, in California yeah. and, you know, what he had to navigate and how, what people thought of him um, to go on to become this man. Uh, and there's some, I had some questions too, but I'll, I'm going to, well, <laughs> we all get out of our lives, right? <laughs> you know, they had his widow in there and his daughter, whose name is Karen. Shout out to her. How about that? No question. Uh, and uh, just, you know, thinking about how a man, not just being black, but seven feet tall in a world that doesn't see you as human. Right. And having and to find you. not see anybody black as human, including the one they love the most, leaving feces at the crib. I mean, come on, y'all. Really? The crazy, they did a whole celebration of him in the town that he moved into, right? That all-white town. Mm. And then when he wanted to buy a bigger house, they were like, oh, no, Negro, that's too far. Now you, no, 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 no. You're doing too much now. We, yeah, you're doing too much. You're staying at the pet store now. You don't, go, you don't get to leave the pet store now. We, we didn't say it. We love you because you help us win. The minute you start losing, well, then you, we just have to do something else, you know. Isn't that something how the generations change, but these things remain the same? You burned down Mahmoud Abdul Raouf's house. Uh, pretty, two generations before, you try to run Bill Russell out. <laughs> I mean, and yet, and yet, these are your children's favorite players. <laughs> it's no different than having a pet. <laughs> when we, yeah, we break that fourth wall and come into humanity, which you know, Sylvia Winter would argue that the problem is the not the notion of the human to begin with. In other words, they came up with a with a construct that we can never be, and so maybe we should stop trying to be that. And then that's when you have a problem. <laughs> Hence, Kaepernick taking a knee. I was say, yeah, you know. <laughs> and once we stop supporting uh, the human zoos, right? Once well, we stop throwing peanuts at the at the people in the human zoo, zoo the human, maybe maybe it all changes. Well, I think it, we can see that we can see the effects. Even when we take a minor step, I mean, the biggest human zoo of the football season, 
uh, con concludes tomorrow. And yet here you had this boy that almost lost his life. And he walks out on the award show, the young brother from Buffalo, and they all screaming. And then, but but because everybody was paying attention, and because that just took another step toward the idea that these are all gladiators of all colors that none of y'all care about. And black people in particular, I mean, Eric Bieniemy. I don't know if you think, I don't know. I don't follow that closely. I know, you know, is, is he going to get a job after this? Finally, since they hire randoms to, to be football coaches in the NFL. But it drew attention to the fact that, you know, you signed that initial contract. It wasn't guaranteed. And who's going to take care of your health care now? It's the human interest story. You wake up. Did we win? But guess what? Now the bills, the NFL. Oh, no, we're going to honor the bills. So we're going to honor the whole contract. OK, OK. And what about health care? And but then what is the story the sports writers and the social structure is saying? They're saying that he could come back and play. Wait, what the hell? What the hell just happened? Did y'all hear? Me? But that mass attention changes everything. It's not when you plead for your humanity, it's when you stand up and say, enough, and enough of us do that. That's when the thing changes. Facts. Facts. I mean, I, you think you think the enemy's gonna get a job this time? I have completely checked out. I don't know, I don't care. Um, okay, very good. Very good. Oh, so it's not even on my radar. I'm just going to be 100% with y'all. Yeah. I, Say that. Not one, not one I mean, second has been spent on football in my mind. I want to I want to mark that too, because as a top of the game award-winning journalist, who one of whose areas of expertise was sports writing, for you to say that, let's all pay attention, y'all. The whole world. There's people checking in from all over the world right now. And as we continue to grow and swell, we up over 2,000 and keeping going. Oh, Here we are. We've been a minute for what I said. Let me open the overflow room. Hold you got to open, open the overflow. <laughs> While we in devotional. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, but let's, let's, I mean, the impact of us being grounded in ourselves. Every, every week we say this, week after week in narrative in Nubia, week after week on the weekends, week after week, Monday through Friday, as you just continue to convene these conversations. Look, that, that piece with Chris Jones. I mean, just introduce us. I, I saw this stumble bomb from Arkansas vomiting through whatever that response to Joe Biden's chef's kiss troll of the Republican Party <laughs> Tuesday night. And I thought to myself, y'all could have, like you said, you could have had Chris Jones. But guess what? Chris Jones over here teaching. Edward Boucher, having a conversation. That whole thing, the whole paradigm has shifted. We are now in with ourselves. Not that you haven't always been there, but it is so out front and deliberate now. And it's infectious. So like you say, you ain't got to force nobody. Now we just keep pointing them clean glasses. He was, oh, this is good. Oh, there's more. Wait, there's more? Yeah, it's really inexhaustible. Yeah. Oh, guess what? You can produce it too. What? That's when they come with, can we help? No, we good. You've helped enough. <laughs> so, so, you know, I had um, Sharif Al-Mekki on. Um, Man. Thank you, yes. thank you for introducing me. Oh no, and no. and Laree and Brian and I are going to be talking on Monday because you know, as you imagine, what children need, children mm, need mm. each other, children need each other, right? And yes. the the Philadelphia School uh, Freedom School that you guys help frame All in Philadelphia, it. the Freedom School there, you know, centers young people teaching young people. Where, yes. where does that happen? Where does that happen? Yes. You know? And doing it at a level that is not just I have responsibility, I am my brother's keeper, but this is how we learn. That's exactly Some people right. learn from their big brothers and sisters and they learn from their parents and their cousins and their uncles and aunts. I mean, this is the multi-generational way in which we got here, which is how we have any of the memories that we have epigenetically. So, right. yeah, we got to continue that. And I'm so excited about what. No, I'm excited too. Everything. I'm very much excited. So much is happening this week. 
All right, tell us. No, 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 no. <laughs> so much has happened this week. I mean, we uh, you know, everything converges. There, there's so many. I mean, I want to mark the transition of a, a handful of people. One of whom um is going to teach us a, a lesson this morning. Um, got news from Dayton uh yesterday from Larry Crow, our brother Nubian. He and of course my mother BC are here always um and one of our master master memory keepers master jegnus master jollies we're not using the term griot in this space we understand griot as the french would say storytellers but no jolly blood circulators of memory uh one of his jegnus the great art thomas dr arthur thomas made transition um uh, was yesterday or day before but actually he uh, dr thomas was living in the dmv area in silver spring maryland um, Dr. Thomas was the president of Central State University for about 10 years, um, a veteran, U.S. veteran, U.S. military. But before that, a uh, native of Philadelphia, uh, a graduate of Central State University, the first, in fact, uh, alum to take over as president of the university, a hardcore African, a hardcore intellectual reader, uh, very important, worked as a teacher in K-12 in the Dayton Public Schools and um, then went into model cities. Actually, model cities fired him because there was conflict in the Dayton public schools between the families of black folk and the children and who were going to the newly desegregated schools and the city of Dayton, of course, as you can imagine. And Art Thomas took the side of the uh, of the, the children, in fact, walking them into the classes, you know, coming into the buildings. And they, they fired him for uh, what they call it, exceeding his responsibilities. No, his responsibilities is those children. And eventually he became, like I said, the president of Central State, was there for 10 years, um, had some fiscal challenges, which you can imagine, as you can imagine, HBCUs often do. Shout out to Central State and to Wilberforce right there across the street from each other. And uh, as the world, as we continue in the in-class uh, moving and coming and going, uh, we mark your calendar if you're around Memorial Day weekend around Southern Ohio, uh, we plan on being that weekend at the gravesite of Martin Robeson Delaney. Uh, and Catherine Delaney and their children as we uh, mark, as Larry has always led in that in the Connecticut Institute of Chicago, Martin Delaney's uh, birthday in May on Memorial Day weekend. And um, our lips to God's ears. I know Larry's working it out now with the administrators there at the first National Museum of African-American History and Culture that was named that. And that, of course, is in Wilberforce, Ohio, the National Afro-American Museum. And cultural center right there on the campus in fact of wilberforce university um in the shadow right right literally across from the carnegie library so we'll be there but larry uh he raised the name of art thomas and of course we we want to we want to raise that name as well um i mentioned john bracy who made transition over the weekend last weekend uh john bracy who uh, one of the founding parents of academic black studies, in other words, black studies departments, the leading light in so many ways at the University of Massachusetts for 50 years, uh, Dunbar High School graduate, DC native. Uh, I just, I just blows my mind how many people are, <laughs> came out of Dunbar High School. But at any rate, uh, grew up on the campus of Howard University, uh, eventually Roosevelt University in Chicago, spent a great deal of time there working through his graduate work part of the black power early black studies movement in the 1960s early 60s um, was one of the pioneers who went out into the university of massachusetts amherst and as part of if not the intellectual center 
there, a brilliant brother who, along with Sonia Sanchez, who was on that faculty for a time, Max Roach, who came through there, Archie Shep, who came through there, and folks, long distance runners like Esther Terry and Ernie Allen and so many others. I'll tell you who was trained in that program after she uh, native herself, a native of Philadelphia, who uh, came through Temple University's graduate program, Masters. She went and got her PhD under Bracey and Michael Thelwell and um, John Edgar Wyman and Terry and others. That would be Kathy, Kathy Adams, who is not only a faithful Nubian and, and marriage member, but is leading that work of uh, institutionalizing the Africana Studies framework at a uh, university level down there at Claflin, Claflin University with her colleague and comrade and our colleague and comrade Andre Key. But Kathy is one of Bracey's uh, students. In fact, the first time I came to UMass, Bracey and, and Kathy and them had put together, um, um, put together a kind of mini conference with the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, ASALA. And uh, of course, Bracey was a longtime member of ASALA, National Council of Black Studies, just a, a pioneer in the field of black studies. Um, he made transition uh, since we've all been together. So there, there's some others, but you know, we, we said we were gonna spend, um, oh, I should mention, <laughs> I'll mention two others. Lauren Cresslove made transition this week. Uh, Lauren Cresslove, I mean, this is the changing of the guard. We all gotta go that way. As old folks used to say, that awful day will surely come, um, but it ain't awful because it's natural. We're born to, to have a moment of perception and then reintegrate into the reality that doesn't change, whether we can perceive it or not. But Sister Lauren Cresslove uh, made transition, one of the founders of WPFW here in Washington, D.C., the Pacifica Network, a brilliant uh, educator, institution builder, um, just all, all around African who fought for our people and who represented us so, so beautifully. Also the blood sister of Francis Crest Welsing, um, Mama Lauren. So um, we pause to lift her as she in, in, begins her journey into eternity. And her one of her great nephews, Yofi Zizinho, my former students and my brothers himself, an educator, so many others. Um, we think about Mama, uh, Mama Lauren in this moment, Lauren Cress, the Cress family, as we've talked about. And then finally, a non-African who co-mingled his creative talent with an African. At least that's uh, the African that put his uh, put this man's uh, genius on a booster rocket and took it to stratospheric heights and that of course we're talking about burke batrack <laughs> burke batrack made transition but of course i don't know di warwick just seems to be a thread through all kind of stuff these days don't it we were, just talking, we were just talking about her mm. last week yes and he is author and i didn't know he was a taurus so shout out to the taurians again yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> but you know watching him all of the songs Every oh. single song that, you know, to this day, a hundred years from now, we will still be singing, humming, and knowing this yeah. man helped produce. So, yeah. Isn't it something? It, it really is. In fact, I want to see if I, uh, you know, the Financial Times, it's interesting, their, their obituaries, because they when they write obituaries of, like, um, people from the United States, sorry to say Americans, but, you know, America's the whole hemisphere, if we continue to use that label. But they they have an economy of language. This is uh, this is this morning's uh, Financial Times composer who perfected the three minute pop song. Uh, they quote Backrack saying it's a short form, three and a half minutes, so everything counts. 
you can get away with murder in a 40-minute piece, but not in three and a half, Burt Batrack said of pop songs. With obsessive attention to detail and supreme uh, melodicism, the composer aimed to make every bar count, turning each cluster of notes into a series of magic moments. The title of one of his first hits with lyricist partner, Hal David. And it goes on, you know, to start talking about <laughs> the sophisticated orchestral balladry of Alfie. Now, that's interesting. It made me think about Dionne Warwick. How's it going? I'm sure something must There's a heaven above Alfie. And you hear the strings come in. That's a melodic. It's kind of tricky melodically. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's something much more. Something even non-believers can believe in. I believe in love. A little subtle chord change there. Without true love, we just exist. Alfie. You hear, you can hear, I mean, Backrat is writing the music. Hal David is credited with the lyrics, but they're really working together as this obituary talks about. They're co-mingling. A lyric will inspire a chord, a chord will inspire a lyric. And then you get songs that seem, you know, like sing song, throwaway pop songs, but they stay in your mind. And then there are moments in the lyrics that resonate almost at a level of philosophy. You understand? A song that might be a sing song. Do you know the way to San Jose? I've been away so long. I may go wrong and lose my way. And then, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, do you know the way to San Jose? Ah, but buried in there near the end is fame and fortune is a magnet. It can pull you far away from home. Hmm, with a dream in your heart, you're never alone. Dreams turn into dust and blow away. And there you are, without a care. You pack your car and ride away. <laughs> Dreams turn into dust and blow away. Wow. <laughs> wow. Without, I mean, you know, it's like. No, I just, you know, as you're. Watching that documentary too, and mm -hmm. thank you, Black History Month, for making no question. put these great things out. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I guess, I lamented and also mourned the lack of writing and music making mm -hmm. of, of this generation. Um, you know, mm. even, even you think about Prince and the vault that he had of thousands of songs that never got released because they weren't good enough for him playing every single instrument on it, singing all of the background. And when you go through that back rack uh, canon, I don't know if you could put a canon through music, but we just did it. Mm -hmm. Think about the lyrics, you know, Dion Ward was like, you know, coming into the studio, don't, don't, um, don't make me over. Don't right. Make me over. Don't, sing that. don't make me over. <laughs> he was like, what you say now? Mm, let me, mm, we're going to write it. Then we're going right. to like, you think about Quincy Jones having Saida Garrett in a room, just waiting to come fill in some, you know, like Barry Gordy's whole system. Like who's doing that today? That is the key. You got to be a professional. Watch this. Don't go over here. This uh, Thursday, I was in my hip hop class. We were going through the rise of Sugar Hill Records, Sylvia Robinson. And, you know, uh, what was the brother? Big Bang Hank, who was managing the Cold Crush Brothers. He comes in to get them a deal. He ends up being part of uh, the Sugar Hill Gang because they lit she literally makes up a rap group to take. Right. And so now I played them a clip of Nile Rodgers. 
saying that how, how they came to a chic and they were doing this, they're working. And, and uh, he said they were at Studio, Studio 54 one night. And he said, Grace Jones had heard their music and said, come see me at Studio 54. So I mean, this is a governance question story. So anyway, now Roger said, so we show up at the back door of Studio 54 because Grace Jones told him, you don't need anything. Just tell them your friends, personal friends of Grace Jones. So they knock on the door. And the bouncer opens the door. He said, we're personal friends of Grace Jones. He said, oh, F off. <laughs> so now Rogers is like, he, they bang again. Oh, I told you, didn't I tell you to F off? They were so mad. They went back to Nile Rogers' apartment where all his equipment was. And they just riffing and stuff. And so he was like, oh, F off. <laughs> F Studio 54. <laughs> That's what he said. But they couldn't get that on the radio. So it turned into, oh, freak out. But here's the kicker to the point you raised it. They are in the studio recording that. Who is in the studio but a studio session singer who says to them, there's a little cap there in that. Oh, freak out. There's a little gap there. So I forget who it was says, so we should say something, huh? Like maybe what? Says she? Let free, say she said, Yeah, that studio musician who heard the gap in the music and said, There's a little gap there, Luther Vandross. That's a true thing. You gotta be in the thing. <laughs> Alpha, Alpha Alexander, who went to school with my mama from Augusta, Georgia, ended up being with Lisa Fisher in the background. What? Yeah, she she went from there, she was with now Rogers and now yes. their background, she was part of Chic. And then she was Luther Vandross's background singer later on. This is and, and Luther and Dion. Come on. And Roberta Flack. Like even all of that. Oh, Roberta's birthday, I think, was yesterday. Was it? God bless woman. Yeah. Oh my God. That's another great documentary that no we watched. Question. No question. The 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 collaboration, the the commingling of mind, and you know, it today everything's fighting. Oh, this versus that. Rap versus, you know, it's like, no, no, community, come together. Everybody's got some some spices to add to this dish. No and question. let's make it historic. That's 100 years from now, these songs are still, even that Chic song. And oh, now I got to take, uh, got to go up on the stage for the Grammys, which I thought was so poetic. Yeah. I didn't even mm -hmm. know he was part of that Beyonce uh, album. And he went Every, up I mean, he's everywhere. In fact, that was the funny thing. The, 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 the students were laughing, sadly, because he said, he went with Blondie to what he called, they called it a hip hop at the time. He said, I don't even know what this is. I'm here. And he heard his bass line and he said, that's my music. And he said, no, that's Rapper's Delight. Hip hop. Boom, 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 boom. He said, uh, but I didn't get any much. That's my record. He said, no. He said, this was before saying he was so shocked. So every time we hear a song in hip hop, if you take Nile Rodgers and George Clinton and James Brown, hip hop collapses. <laughs> you know? No, that's right. really, and of course, Luther, Luther, we take we can take it right back to where we started in this moment. That's Burt Backrock. Mm -hmm. A house is not a home. That's Burt Backrock. And of course, Dion Warwick with that relationship with Luther, he revives those songs. Anyone who ever loved can look at me. Luther after Dion from the pen of Burt Backrack. I mean, so you see how they Africanize it, quite frankly. In fact, in the uh, in the um, 
in the obituary, it says this in the Financial Times. Let me see if I can find it quickly. Ah, with the likes of Make It Easy on Yourself, initially a 1962 hit for the R&B singer Jerry Butler. Come on, Iceman. Backrack learned to incorporate the sounds of Black American pop into his orchestrations. Or... They Africanized Burt Backrack. <laughs> so, I mean, we raise, I mean, and then there are other songs that I would have loved. I probably, well, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it might be because, the, again, the lyrics, Trains and Boats and Planes. Do y'all know that one? Y'all know that one? I had to look on the MC. Trains and Boats and Planes, which is, again, trains and boats and planes are passing by. They mean a trip to Paris or Rome for someone else. But not for me, the trains and the boats and planes. Dion is singing that. But again, there are lyrical moments in American pop that 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 anchor in your mind. Michael Jackson singing, be careful what you do when the lie becomes the truth. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, catch that right there. In, in trains and boats and planes, when she says, you are from another part of the world you had to go back a while ago you said you soon would return again i'm waiting here like i promised to i'm waiting here but where are you oh train and boats and planes took you away but every time i see them i pray that no it has to go every time i see them i pray and if my prayers can cross the sea the trains and the boats and planes will bring you back back home to me it seems like a very simple thing, but when you put the orchestration behind it, when you put that music that back records and you hear that orchestral swell, the whole idea of separation and reunion and the fact that no matter even if you are separate, you are still thinking about that other person. Backrack, Dion, Aretha. Oh, the moment I wake up <laughs> before I put on my makeup. It's no different than when Billie Holiday takes Strange Fruit and makes it hers. That song, Black People Now. I say a little prayer for you. That's, I mean, everybody's a human thing. But when you hear that coming out the mouth of a Black woman, you know, I'm mad as hell at you. We done fought the whole time. But still, I got up this morning, I said a prayer. <laughs> you brought that into the ways of knowing of Black people. You yeah. know? Or walk on by. Oh if my God. Me, If you see me walking in the street, come on. You, you better walk on by. And I start to cry each time. Yeah, you better come on. <laughs> but watch this. Not only back rack to Dion, but Professor Hunter. Who makes it into a damn 12-minute magnum opus? Taking the orchestration and then Africanizing it in a way. If you see me walking down the street, Isaac Hayes, remember Isaac? <laughs> he put them sisters in the back. Walk on, walk on by. He take out the trumpet, and Isaac Hayes sitting there with that chain around his neck, Black Moses. <laughs> then took it a whole nother direction. Foolish part. <laughs> That's all I have left 
So let me cry in silence. <laughs> in other words, you walk on by because ain't nothing you can say to me because I'm still grieving. Isaac Hayes, Dion Warwick, Burt Backrat, which tells you we didn't come here speaking English. Mm. And yet some kind of way, when they force that English in our mouths, we turn it into something that they can't even recognize no more. All they can do is say, I wrote this, but clearly you needed to take these words <laughs> and bring it in. Again, bringing it into who you are, not, not coming where I am, but meeting me. And in meeting me, that human connection, this is, this is what we're really talking about. We're not talking about assimilation. This is Du Bois's point. Again, shout out Du Bois. This is the narrative joint. Y'all get this. His birthday coming up the 23rd of, of February. I was in a Du Bois mind, frame of mind today because, of course, uh, February the 12th, 1909, the National Association for the Study, um, no, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, so to speak, the NAACP was born. So um, that was one of the things I had on my mind to talk about today. Um, in passing, as we are devoting February again to this question of curriculum, and we'll, 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 we'll certainly do that as well today. But Du Bois was always, you know, every group of humans has something to contribute to the world and to each other. The idea that somehow we should become something or someone or some group other than who we are is offensive to the concept of our common humanity. We all have different things to contribute. The Backrack Dion Warwick collaborations with Hal David it may seem like a small thing in pop culture, but in fact, what you get a glimpse of is the kind of things we're talking about. And this, and for you to make that connection, I mean, that just brings it completely home. We're always, the, the best connections we make is when we stand on our own two feet and meet each other. The worst connections we make is when we try to leave our feet at home to get somebody else's feet. First of all, you can't do it. Second of all, you look real weird. Third of all, you're training your children not to be themselves. And that's how we get in this mess. Or as Carter Woodson would write in his uh, in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. This is the seat, the seat of the trouble. <laughs> You're trying to be somebody else. So, uh, yeah, those, those, those are some of the ancestors. Um, but there's, there's one ancestor, though, that I hadn't anticipated talking about until I got a, uh, a command, really. And I'm very happy to say that in that in that term from an elder who is on the faculty at, at Howard University brother from Alabama, a uh, biologist by training, a scientist by training. Uh, one time he was the chairman of the Department of Biology. And uh, for a long time, he was the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, then the College of Liberal Arts. Uh, my friend and brother and elder, Clarence Lee. Dean Lee uh, emailed me and he said that he would not be able to uh, attend the ritual that was held yesterday where I spent much of the day. Um, and would I go in his place to deliver his remarks. And, you know, when an elder like that, I mean, I, I would have done it of general principle, but, you know, I, Clarence Lee, uh, I love that brother. He's very, plus he's from Alabama, my mom from Alabama. I always try to, you know, it's a protocol involved. Um, and by the way, I should mention, when I mentioned protocol, it made me think immediately of uh, our sister, Angela Porter, who was here probably this morning. Uh, her, her law review article dropped uh, with the Michigan Journal of Race and Law, Professor Hunter, dropped this week. It's in volume 27. Um, I'll share the link. In fact, let me see if I can pull up the link and share it here in Nubia. If you're watching this later on YouTube, uh, I suppose I could share the link somewhere. Again, I'm showing us where. Oh, you know what? I'll put it in the comments there. But uh, 
let me see if I can uh, find the app because I opened the app here and I'll, oh, here we go. I put in here because here's the thing. Here is the thing about our space. We have jailbroken everything. We have jailbroken everything because whether it be Prof, you going back into the Sirius XM st studios this week and uh, you say you brought some students with you. If you brought some students with you, then that's jailbreaking the room. I'm back on campus in person. Yeah, I had two classes uh, at Sirius this week. Wow. See, and that and that and that's the jailbreak. The, this has been jailbroken. And we continue to jailbreak. We've jailbroken it now. Now we're just filling it up. We're just pouring these glasses of water. Now, imagine, imagine us talking about a law review article, which is typically a very, very insular, very tiny, very small group of legal academics talking to each other. Imagine us saying, <laughs> talking about a law review article in the context of everybody, children to elders. No gates, no bars, no pretension so that our conversations and imagine us doing that because the article I'm about to mention is about us. It's for us. It's by us. And it's grounded in our ways of knowing our governance concepts. And it is presented in a social structure context where once we stand in our own feet, on our own feet and in our own uh, foundation, once we stand, as the Masons might say, on the square, Prince Hall might say, on the square, then we then project into the world and the world responds. The world can't deny it if you stand in yourself. So with that in mind, I'll just mention this by way of protocol and come back to where I was talking with Dean Lee and what I had to do yesterday and how that fits with what we're talking about today. Uh, Professor Porter's uh, article in the Michigan Journal of Race and Law, and I just put the link in the, uh, in the chat here in Nubia, it's called Africana Legal Studies. That's right. A new theoretical approach to law and protocol. This is this is very serious now because now you're talking about an article that's about 70 pages, a little over 70 pages, extensive footnotes, as you see. But let me just read you the opening paragraph. I'm going to go past the epigraph at the beginning I'm, uh, out of modesty. But here's the thing. Watch this. Just a paragraph. And those of us who, again, we're in the Africana States class on Monday nights. We're going to nature. We're in Maroon's Medicine Chats. We're doing yoga. We, we're here. We are grounded here. Five days a week, Sirius XM, bringing us to us and hearing these conversations. Here we are on Saturday. And then tomorrow, again, with, with, with Sanyata, we are grounded in us. So this is what Angie Porter writes on the first page of this article. Only one paragraph. See if, you pick up, see if you can pick up the Africana framework in it. In 1743, a group of enslaved Africans from various estates in French colonial New Orleans gathered, held a musical ceremony sung in their native language, and discussed the actions and fate of a slaveholder named Corbin. Earlier, Corbin had threatened to shoot one of the enslaved Africans in this group, and Corbin's brother then actually shot that person with a gun loaded with salt. Now, as the group of Africans gathered, they determined that Corbin had to die. Two months later, Corbin disappeared and was never found, period. <laughs> now, that's how she opens the article. <laughs> you understand? I should, no, wait, wait. 
okay, I'm gonna read the second paragraph because we I think we can see governance, we see social structure, we see ways of knowing, we see cultural meaning making and movement and memory in the sense that they're speaking their language just means they figured out a way to sustain that language over time and space. But the second paragraph, she says, she writes, if we use a traditional Western legal framework to describe this situation, we might say that this group of slaves met, conspired, plotted to murder, and likely did murder Corbin. That's all social structure language. That's the language of the law. Every lawyer in here knows that. She writes, but if we center the perspective of these enslaved Africans and contemplate that they had their own home cultures with their own systems of justice brought with them from Africa, we might rephrase. She writes, these Africans convened and judged Corbin's conduct, sentenced him to death, and likely executed him, period. That's the foundation for what she's developing as Africana legal studies. Anybody think this is a game? You just heard why it's not a game. Now, this is a very different perspective. That's why what we, when we call some, something Africana studies, like the new AP class, which is now continue to generate stuff, and we're going to talk more about that this week, but I'm going to, you know, I'll make some passing reference to it, but we won't center today because of what we're about to talk about. And we still got weeks in February to, to kind of continue to string this. And again, I'm going to still tie it to last week and next week. But that's not an Africana studies course. And that's fine. That's just fine. You can label it Africana studies, but you're really not doing Africana studies unless you are connecting unbroken genealogies. Certainly conflictual. There are silences. They're going to be all kind of mixtures and syncretic moments, but it's an unbroken genealogy of Africana meaning making passed from generation to generation to generation. You just heard a, a preview of 70 pages of tight legal reasoning that is going to start with us. And the us it starts with engages African languages, African movement and memory, African cultural meaning making and ways of knowing, an Africana studies framework applied to legal analysis, one that then becomes finally accessible to all of us because what it does is obliterate the idea that somehow higher education, professional training is gonna displace who we are as people in the world. This is an absolute threat to people who think they're going to hold a pretentious distancing grounding and say, somehow I am better than you because I have come through these institutions and you haven't. Well, somebody on the inside and the call is coming from the inside of the house. This is going to be very, very interesting. So anyway, the reason I thought about the article in passing as a footnote now back in the text of what we're talking about today, which you haven't really left, is that. Professor Porter centers the concept of protocol. There's a protocol. So there was a protocol when Clarence Lee reached out to me and said, I can't be there, so will you stand for me? I said, man, come on, you're an elder. It's not even a matter of you being a professor, you being a former dean, you being a department chair. No, you're my elder. So of course I'm going to stand. And that standing was for a ritual, a funeral ritual, a mass of Christian burial for this sister. This is Olive Augusta Taylor, Dr. Olive Taylor. This was the ritual that was held for her yesterday at the Church of the Incarnation Parish in Northeast D.C., a neighborhood called Deanwood, one of the oldest black neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. This was the home at one time of uh, Marvin Gaye, Nanny Helen Burroughs, the great Nally, Nanny Helen Burroughs, whose national training school for, for colored girls, for black women was in Deanwood section of Washington, D.C. The great Chancellor James Williams, Chancellor Williams out of South Carolina. Um, who was an, a resident there for 
decades. His wife, who made transition, he uh, Chance Williams made transition in like 1992. I think he he was almost 100 years old. He was 99. Uh, his wife made transition in her 90s, about a maybe about 12 or 13 years later, 2003. By then, she had lived in the house that Chance Williams built in Deanwood uh, for almost 70 years. This is the Deanwood situation, uh, the Deanwood neighborhood. And this is, of course, the home neighborhood of Dr. Taylor. Uh, Taylor, and I want to talk about her today in the context of the NAACP. I want to talk uh, about her in the context of ritual. I want to talk about her in the context of governance versus social structure. And I want to talk about her in the context of the possibilities and limits of hierarchical education whether it be an advanced placement course in k-12 the capstone kind of concept of education in k-12 education in the united states whether it be the university and the priorities that often find themselves there and, and as we think about this in black history month in the united states on the 12th of well, on the 11th of february actually the, the 12th of february i think was maybe when the NAACP was founded. Anyway, the point is that because it was founded in the same week in the spirit of interracial cooperation by white people with a handful of Negroes sprinkled in like Ida Wells and W.B. Du Bois, we'll get there in a minute, with the idea that there would be interracial cooperation, but that interracial cooperation ultimately found its way back into the governance formation of African people as the NAACP continued to go on. We'll talk about that a little bit, but I want to use the life of Olive Taylor uh, as a moment for us to think about governance formations in Africana. Thank you. So uh, as you all know, this week, we will continue in Nubia on Monday night. And thanks for the thousands who continue to those numbers continue to grow as we're going through our Africana studies course. And we're in framing question four now. How did Africans conceive, think, imagine, act on concepts of unity in thought and action beyond nation state boundaries in the face of European and American imperialism? So we're in the 1860s and 70s now. And we're coming up now into the first part of the 20th century, around the time the NAACP is founded, first quarter of the century, the turn of the 20th century, so to speak. And that is a period in which African people who are resisting oppressive formations everywhere, whether it be the, the, the settler colonialism of the Western Hemisphere, having fought their way out of enslavement in the Caribbean, Latin America, and North America, in particular the United States, having uh, now having to stave off settler settlers as they invade africa the continent of africa we'll be talking about all that but we want to you know one of the one of our readings is cedric robinson black movements in america chapter five we have chapters four and five of cedric robinson's black movements in america and we have chapters one and two of ngugi Wathiango, something torn and new where he talks about dismemberment and remembering these two tropes but in chapter five of Black Movements in America, which we'll talk about on Monday night. I'm just evoking it here in the context of the NACP. Chapter 5 is entitled The Nadir and Its Aftermath. And so Robinson is now entering the 20th century here, and he, quote, he quotes W.E.B. Du Bois at the beginning, but I'm not going to read that. He talks about, I'm just going to 
talk about this a little bit now. If you're in Nubia, this is a preview for when we do our work on Monday night. If you're not yet in Nubia or a narrative, then can then coming into Nubia, then you know if you've got this book, you can kind of trace with us. But Robinson writes about the second half of the 19th century, so the mid 1800s. Two alternative black political cultures had arisen here in the United States, each nurtured by a particular black experience. Akin to the social divergences that appeared throughout slave societies in the New World, communities of free blacks gravitated toward the privileged political and social identities jealously reserved for non-blacks. Pause. That's that black elite. That's usually the history that we tell. That's the history of, you know, the first to do this, the first to do that, the people who are fighting against segregation, the people who are fighting, you know, fighting uh, Jim Crow, fighting to get into these institutions, fighting to get into the schools, fighting to get the jobs, fighting, you know, fighting to integrate. Is there anything wrong with that? No, the proximity kind of dictates that. A lot of this conversation about this advanced placement course is really being held in those circles. As we talked about Monday night, we talked back into, um, talk about more of that. If you're not in Nubia, we had an extensive conversation around that in, in another context, but I'll say less at this point. He says, he writes, uh, he says, at the same time, on the plantations and in the slave quarters. So we're thinking about the people who are not in the house, even though people in the house are resisting. We don't do this house slave, field slave dichotomy. That's not accurate. We're talking about how you resist. The, the Those who are closer in proximity to whiteness are resisting, informed by the proximity of the social structure they find themselves in, that vestige, uh, that, that, that area of social structure. Those who are resisting, as, as Robinson is about to say, who are farther away from that, going to resist differently. Deanwood section, for example, in Washington, D.C., was not segregated legally, but by custom, whereas other parts of the city were segregated. And one of the reasons black gravitated to Deanwood was because they'd be left alone and they could buy property and white people could buy property, too. They just chose not to. Now, of course, gentrification is beginning to creep because when I got to the church, I got there early. I like to get there early, you know, because I had never been to this church. And let me walk. And so I walked the neighborhood. I ran to a cat that works at Howard. It was a beautiful thing. We were talking. And so, you know, I went over up down Nanny Helen Burroughs Boulevard. I'm over on 55th, if y'all know DC, Northeast DC. I went went by H.D. Woodson High School, the newly, well, not newly, but the redone H.D. Woodson High School. H.D. Woodson was a community leader in D. Wood, a brother. Marvin Gay Park which is not too far from where Nellie Helen Burroughs school was. And I saw the brothers and sisters over there. You know, they got the Marvin Gaye, you know, uh, photograph up. It's a beautiful thing. These are black people. And they're in the shadow of downtown D.C., the D.C. that people talk about, as Cat Williams would say. You know, uh, there's Washington and then there's D.C. I was in D.C., the governance face, space. But at any rate, uh, I mentioned that because this, this distinction that Robinson is going to make between those who uh, had privileged political and social identities in the social structure we find ourselves in are going to shape their resistance toward that system they are most familiar with. And he says at the same time on the plantations in the slave quarters, slaves tended, and he's using the word slave, I'm, I'm quoting him, slaves tended to form a historical identity that presumed a higher moral standard than that which seemed to bind their masters. Among the two formations in the United States, the better publicized was the assimilationist black political culture that appropriated the values and objectives of the dominant American creed. Especially among the urban free blacks of the colonial and antebellum periods, a liberal bourgeois consciousness was nourished, packed with capitalist ambitions and individualist intuitions. Let's go out here. I'm going to help the race by helping myself make this money, give back, move forward. The kind of rhetoric we have today. I think I know 
in terms of the repositioning of conversations in the advanced placement course the college board has the repositioning of topics like black lives matter the repositioning of social movements contemporary social movements out of unit four directly and then into the group project where they can still and, and will i'm certain be engaged but no longer in the the bones of the framework, which will probably drive the test items. So there's a real conflict going on. Uh, I saw my friend, Dr. David Johns, uh, among others, they're calling for the resignation of the head of the college board, uh, the National Black Justice Coalition. And they got a hashtag going around, uh, Black History Queer, AF. And, you know, saying, you know, you took out queer theory, you took out intersectionality. Well, it's not taken out. It's moved to the group project as a potential topic students can uh, can use. And, of course, the pushback coming from black, it's black on black conversation, this governance formation conversation in some ways, although some of these folks are informed by the social structure. They're trying to get the attention of the social structure. The response is, you know, we got a lot of teachers and some people in here new, in Nubia right now. I know for a fact some some people I'm making some very good friendships with and I'm grateful for master teachers who are teaching this course, you know. Unless we're going to bump for them in some of these states, particularly in the old Confederacy. Shout out to the old Confederacy, continue to reinforce its next iteration. I saw that uh, Texas and Oklahoma are joining the slave economic concern very shortly, uh, also known as the Southeastern Football Conference. The old Confederacy continued to rework itself and knit itself together for another stand, perhaps the last stand. Shout out to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, looking like she's going to fight Jerry Lawler at WWF on Tuesday night when she came in in that WrestleMania coat. But at any rate, I understand how, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you got to, you know, you know, you wish you were in Atlanta cotton. No times there were not forgotten, but there are, we are teachers in the old Confederacy teaching this course. So if you put that conversation into the bare bones of the units, you are inviting a fight with state level officials, local officials, clowns like Andrew DeSantis and Greg Abbott and others, the Tennessee legislature. They're, they're all talking to each other. See, they got a team. We got a team. They're huddling their team. Meanwhile, we and our team saying, yeah, I'm with, you know, you shouldn't have took that out. You should have fought them. Everybody calm down. Number one, things weren't moved in response to Anything Andrew DeSantis said, even though people, the New York Times leaked a badly written story in some way. They wasn't badly written. They just buried the lead. They said, oh, y'all was talking to Florida all along. They were talking to all the states all along. They didn't make any changes based on that. Or if they did, it isn't apparent. But I'm just coming. So let me come to this point because there are a lot of people in here who don't know what I'm talking about. And that's just fine because I'm not going to spend much more time on it right now, except to end with this. If you are a classroom teacher in any valence, kindergarten through PhD, JD, MD, you know that in the professions, there's a certain amount of material that you must cover because people are going to be tested on it. You get your license that way. K-12, you're going to be test driving instruction. College, they're going to be test driving those instruction, driving instruction. But if you've tried to stuff everything into a curriculum, then you probably haven't taught. You probably just saying, let's put everything in. Let's put everything. Have you ever tried to teach this in a 50 minute class or a 90 minute class over the arc of five days in a K-12 classroom while you're doing all this other stuff? No, you haven't, have you? That's why you can write a beautiful curriculum that nobody uses or can only get through part of it. In fact, I was going through some of my curriculum materials, pulling things together. Uh, this is uh, this is Gerald's book. Well, he edited it along with Howard Dotson and some others, uh, Midline Bedell. It's called Thinking and Rethinking U.S. History. 
So, I mean, again, with the, with the theme we have this month, one of the themes, which is nothing in the AP class, nothing in any curricular innovation, uh, recent memory, very good and provocative stuff like 1619 Project, for example, is new. What do they do, Gerald and them? They go through textbooks and then they look at what has been erased, what has been included, what needs to be put into conversation. And one of the things, of course, that they talk about, among other things, are the themes. They go through these textbooks. And they look at social justice issues like racism and quote unquote people of color, colonialism, sexism, militarism, classism, social change movements. The same debates being had about this AP class have been covered years before. And this ain't even old, old. This is like 1988, 1988. This was a commission study by the Council on Interracial Books for Children. Anyway, coming into this. So if you're writing curriculum, you're really dealing with themes. You're going to look through and see which themes are emphasized. Unit four of the AP course, then in, in, the, in the draft, in the pilot, and in the permanent one that came out, is still about social movements, social justice movements. But those topics have been extracted and moved, many of them, into the group, pro I mean, the, I keep saying group, the individual project assignment, which is 20% of the total grade. The AP exam and the group project together make 100% of the assessment. Now, I went through all that to say this. All the teachers know that they're the ones responsible for this, carrying this class, teaching this class. And if you are behind the cotton curtain or in a school where the cotton curtain exists in your school, New York, Pennsylvania, wherever, you've got to navigate that building. And no social justice warrior no academic, no talking head on TV or writing in the newspapers is going to be able to save you when you've got to come in and fight a fight that was set up before you ever walked in the room because Moms for Liberty or some other billionaire funded group of uh, fascist adjacent people are coming for your neck. So part of the thing, and I'm not defending the college board because I don't really have a dog in this fight. Again, we're here. We're standing in our foundation. So all of this is social structure commentary that we influence precisely by not coming off our square. So I really don't have a dog in this fight directly, even though I was one of the hundreds who worked on the curriculum. What I'm saying is that part of the calculus is how do we shield these teachers so they can keep doing what we want done, but we don't just come out front with rah-rah to start this fight. And that lies, therein lies, attention. So Robinson says that by the second half of the 19th century, you've got these two alternative black political cultures. One is the assimilationist culture, the black elites who are coming in. And I would probably group this critique of the AP course. In part, that is an assimilationist move. Why? We want this integrated into the curriculum. And if you know about curriculum construction, you know that the wars of the 1990s in particular, where there were two ways you could do this. One, they would call it the infusion model. In a minute, the sister I'm about to talk about for the rest of our small time together today. I'm going to talk about that in a, in a, in a gesture, some work that she did uh, back in 1968 on curriculum. Infusing Africana into the curriculum, because we could ask ourselves very simply, why do we need an Africana studies course at the advanced placement level or in, or in any K-12 schooling? Why can't we just put Africana in world history, in American history, in all human endeavors across the sciences? That's the infusion model. My friend Dana King, when she was over at Social Studies and African American Studies at the School District of Philadelphia, the sister who literally commanded us and brought that team together and told me, go out and get these people, let's do this. So I got Dr. Beatty, Dr. Watkins, and some others, Dr. Malik Watts, and some others, Dr. Toussaint, and others to write this curriculum framework that we call Lessons in Africana Studies. There was also an infusion 
an infusion project for K-8 that was led by the now ancestor, great ancestor, lived into his well into his 90s, the great Edward Robinson, Dr. Edward Robinson. Some of y'all know Edward and Calvin Robinson out of Philadelphia. Dr. Ed Robinson was charged with infusing. So because K-8, you don't have separate subject areas in the same way. So you're going to infuse Africana across the continent. That's one approach. So theoretically, you wouldn't need at the high school level an AP African-American studies course if you got Africana in all the others. You know, if you're taking an AP uh, European history class, you don't have Africa all in that because the Africans were in Europe, then you got a problem. We'll come back to that too in a second. Anyway, that's one approach. The other approach would be to have that Africana-centric, African-centered, Afrocentric, African-centered space. A, 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 a dedicated, deliberate black study space, Africana study space. Now, these two things aren't mutually exclusive necessarily. I don't think they are. I don't think the people who write curriculum are. But this is the, th these impulses now lead me to where I'm going with this as I come out of our momentary conversation of the AP class, because that's just an example as I'm coming back now to where we were with, with Dean Lee and what happened to me yesterday in Deanwood at the church with Dr. Olive Taylor and her ritual. Cedric Robinson in chapter five of our reading for Monday night in the Introduction to African States course, asking the question, how do Africans conceive of unity and thought and action beyond nation state boundaries in the face of European American imperialism? Cedric Robinson says by the late, uh, by the mid 19th century, you got these two political cultures. One's kind of assimilationist. He says, but the other one on the plantations and in the slave quarters, slaves tended to form a historical identity to presume a higher moral standard than that which seemed to bind their masters. Meaning what? The farther you get away from the kind of hierarchy into the masses of people, and I don't mean the masses in any flattening sense, but most of us into the most of us, the farther you get away from it, the more you're going to see the real hold of Africana the complex, often contradictory tapestry of meaning-making, ways of knowing, cultural meaning-making, movement and memory. And out of that emerges two things. The grounded expression of Africana across time and space as it changes across time and space and is handed from generation to generation to generation. That's number one. And number two, the best shot we have the best shot we have of achieving our full human potential, our full potential as living people in the world, because we are not inventing ourselves and reinventing ourselves and remembering ourselves and projecting ourselves into the world as figments of other people's imaginations or as contributors to flawed social structures that will never accept us as human in the world, which might not even be the question we should be asking. Robinson finally writes, among the two formations in the United States, because we see these all over. But he says, of these two formations in the United States, and by that, I mean, think about how these things operate other places. There's an election near the end of the month in Nigeria. We got three candidates running, two kind of machine politicians and one a businessman who was at one time the vice presidential candidate for one of the guys who has run many times, but is seen as an outsider. Well, you know, you got these elites and one of the things he's saying is I'm running against these other two because they represent the past. They represent bureaucracy. They represent the old administrations. They represent all this other stuff, either the Obasanjo administration or the current president of Nigeria, his administration. So you see um, Abu Bakr administration saying you can't. You got a break from that. But what do politicians keep saying? I'm from the common person. I'm from the common person. Joe Biden did a masterful job, I thought, on Tuesday night trying to talk to the common person. 
yeah, y'all hate them hotel fees. And it isn't even a resort. I'm like, who wrote this? Whoever wrote this needs a raise. <laughs> but and people, and now, of course, the social structure media is saying he's trying to get those lost white voters, trying to get them back. Now you're talking to working people. And guess what? Most working people in this country are not those white people. Increasingly, they are not white. Working, We're not working people. We're not the poor people who, who got all these hidden fees when you try to book a flight. We're not the poor people who got out this cable bill and you don't realize half the damn bill is, is other stuff. So he's he's trying to, but 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 the appeal is not to the Joe Bidens, the Jill Bidens who's going to the uh to the to the Eagles game and can sit in the box. This this ain't the appeal to most of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Well, maybe not Summer Lee and Maxwell Frost, because they ain't got no money. They got they 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 are young people getting in. I mean, but most of them people, many of those people, especially in the Senate, they billionaires. He's talking to the people who, who trying to rub two nickels together. Get that child tax credit back in. Do all this kind of thing. Now, I'm not capable for Joe Biden either. I'm just making this point. Politics across the world, politicians try to appeal to those people who are not part of the elites, but then they get in and they betray those people. So this isn't unique to the United States. But what Robinson is focusing on here in the United States, he's focusing on the United States. He says, among the two formations in the United States, the better publicized was the assimilationist Black political culture that appropriated the values and objectives of the dominant American creed especially among the urban free blacks of the colonial and antebellum periods, a liberal bourgeois consciousness was nourished, packed with capitalist ambitions and individualist intuitions, as I said. A constant before and after the Civil War and into the new century, this consciousness manifested itself in a tendency toward an Americanist optimism about integration or assimilation. When assimilation seemed ill-conceived, the quiescent black middle stratum of wage laborers and professionals hunkered down and a minority and renegade species of black nationalist desires was enjoined. Black businesses, black, we can't get there yet. So we're gonna circle the wagons and do for ourselves. This is the challenge that Woodson is grappling with in the miseducation of the Negro. He says, you should support these black businesses. You should support them. But these black businesses need to understand that they are benefiting from you and they should not have values that are basically exploitative. I want you to do it for me now. Of course, Woodson is writing in 1933, a whole 50 almost years before BET. Story for another day. But the point is this. I want to be successful because I want to be successful. And because I'm trapped, I need to be successful in my community. Woodson's like, that's cool, but you shouldn't orient your attempt at success as individual advancement at the expense of these people. You need to understand that even if they would let you over there, you should still ground yourself in what we're doing here. Robinson then goes on and says, to the contrary, the black mass movements, these are the most of the people of the late 19th and 20th centuries, proved both the existence and the vitality of an alternative black political culture. I would call that ways of knowing, a way of knowing. Emergent from the brutal rural regimes of slavery and later pinage. Here's the, here's the money. Inventive rather than imitative. Communitarian rather than individualistic. Democratic rather than Republican. I'd get rid of that language, but I understand you got to use that language. Afro-Christian rather than secular and materialist. The social values of these largely agrarian people generated a political culture that distinguished between the inferior world of the political and the transcendent universe of moral goods. Separatism was the principal impulse of this culture. And over the next century or more, this separatism would assume the several forms already familiar. Maroonage, marinage, I mean, we talked about that. Immigration with an E, meaning just leave. Whether you're going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
uh, 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 Haiti in Durham, North Carolina, whether you're going to Black Wall Street or the Black Bottom in Philadelphia, whether you're going in D.C. to Deanwood, whether you're going to whatever you can find where you can be with yourself and develop yourself. And out of that comes the excellence, your immigrate, migration and domestic or external colonization. Although it foreclosed the possibility of integration or assimilation, separatism in its most sanguine manifestations accommodated the possible possibility of social coexistence, avoiding the moral squalor of black racism. Meaning what? I'll stop there for now. We'll pick up with this on Monday night. I'm just framing this for what I'm about to talk about. In other words, they're saying separatism don't mean the white man's the devil. No, separatism don't mean I hate these people. No, separatism means, hey, we know we. Let's get together. Let's do our thing. We're going to ignore all this stuff. We'll navigate the social structure when we do, and we can coexist. In fact, if you change these laws, we can even get down. You can come over here and, and eat what we eat and have some music and this kind of thing. It'll be a beautiful thing. But what we're not going to do is make ourselves footnotes in your reality because that takes our power. When you walk away from the thing that is trying to make you a footnote, that's when the thing moves. If enough of us walk away, there is no AP class to argue about whether uh, Unit 4 includes Black Lives Matter if there's not a Black Lives Matter movement in the twenty in, 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 in summer 2020, as we talked about. That doesn't mean they weren't trying to do it before, but that just means that that movement away from complacency is what catalyzed and gave the people on the inside the opportunity to finally push ahead. All right. On early this week, I got this email from Dean Lee. I need you to represent me at this funeral. Of course, Baba, I would be very happy to do that. The person who made transition in, uh, in January, who was, uh, as Black folks say, was funeralized yesterday, Olive Augusta Taylor, Dr. Taylor, is a whole legend of ma among master teachers. And what I want to use her today and, and ask her ancestrally to teach one more lesson. I want to examine just for a few minutes here the relationship of teaching and learning grounded in us to social structures that attempt to cultivate an idea that somehow we must go to those social structures, leaving who we are in our governance formations, leaving them outside those social structures as the price of admission, the price of the ticket. And, and I, wanna, I want us to think with her life as an example of the possibilities and the limits and why, again, the space we're in now and spaces like it are not just important, not just invaluable, but indispensable, indispensable indispensable all right let's talk about this a little bit as dr taylor teaches us maybe a final lesson in her life at this moment of how we remember how we institutionalize teaching and learning in a way that opens everyone <sighs> little housekeeping i'm gonna mention this in passing because i was fascinated it's a black catholic church as i said this one um saint augustine saint augustine's rather uh, Reverend Wright, <laughs> I remember the day, St. <laughs> Augustine's and, and, and Church of the Incarnation Parish, these are two of the oldest black, I think St. Augustine's the oldest black Catholic 
uh, congregations in Washington, D.C. If you are Catholic in this space, whether you are a daughter or son of the Caribbean, the continent of Africa, Latin America, or the United States, then I'm, I'm hoping what I'm about to say will resonate with you. Uh, I laugh because given how the Obamas treated uh, Reverend Wright, Reverend Dr. Wright, out of fear for what the social structure would or wouldn't say or do about them, do for them or to them, uh, Reverend Wright never leaving out of the government's formation, given his deep command of ways of knowing and, and, and being a, a living repository of movement and memory and a master teacher in addition to a spiritual uh, spiritual anchor for us. And of course, you know, Richard Smallwood, another graduate of HBCU Howard University, Reverend Wright would often use and close his ritual moments at Trinity and beyond. He did this at Howard Chapel many years with total praise. I lift my hand in total praise to you. Right? Well, St. Augustine was invited to the White House. I was during Black History Month. They had the red, black, and green robes on, and they sang total praise. And I text Reverend Wright and said, hey, man, is Obama trying to make up? And you, is he apologize? Because that's Trinity's song. I mean, it's a song, obviously, we all. No, but Trinity is it's it's it, it, it's a staple of Trinity. So you got the Black Catholic Church singing at the White House, and they sing total praise. I'm saying I'm sure y'all check the list because y'all don't let nothing go to man. So I mean, did you request that, Barack? Are you trying to apologize to me? But anyway, the point is this: Saint Augustine, uh, Saint Augustine's in Church and Incarnation, two of the oldest Saint Augustine oldest. So I'm here. It's been a long time since I've been a Catholic service. Now, some of y'all Catholics, if you Anglican, now I know some of you Africans in, on the, from the continent, y'all Anglican, right? That's the high church. Or if you're from the Caribbean, Trinidad, Jamaican, you know about that high church, right? Where you got the stiff benches and God is far away and you got to pray and they got the little thing you pull out the pew and get on your knees. Well, they had all that. This is the black Catholic church. Dr. Taylor was a, was a parishioner there. She's a member. Okay. So I'm watching the rituals, which I hadn't seen in person in a long time. And I thought, this is very interesting because something is very comedic about these rituals. This ain't no new thing because the Catholic church, the, the first European church, of course, is derivative of all those Abrahamic traditions coming out of Africa. So you see the rituals and you realize, you know, we're, we're very big about ritual. You know, black folks are serious about ritual. The Catholic church shows those marks. And it sent me back to my shelf for a book that I got just a little while ago that I hadn't had a chance to start reading yet. Well, I started reading it and I put it down after a chapter, but I had to go back and start reading it again. This is um, Jorin DeWolf's new book, Afro-Atlantic Catholics, America's First Black Christians. He's making the argument that really black Christianity in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in the United States, we're focusing on the U.S. now for a moment, isn't really a product of Protestantism and the Great Awakening. See, I'm not a theologian. Some, you know, uh, Reverend Haynes, Reverend Wright, you know, Reverend Reed, all the reverends here, uh, Baba Kamathi, Bishop Shrine of Black Madonna, Nubians who are here. See, we got a whole team of theologians, or better yet, ways of knowing people who can help through this and help us with this and everybody here for that matter who is still in these rituals he's saying that you know it ain't really the great awakening it ain't really Protestantism. it's catholicism and it doesn't start in the western hemisphere it starts in africa with the portuguese who are 
and the Spanish who got who are enslaving these Africans and bringing them into Catholicism, then they bring it with them. So and when Angie Porter is writing her article on protocol and starting in Louisiana and starting by the, she's relying heavily, as she says in her footnotes, on the work of, among others, Michael Gomez and Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. Midlow Hall spent a lot of time in New Orleans dealing with this. Uh, and that generation that comes out of Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, whether it be Rashana Johnson, uh, who's at the University of Chicago, how university graduated her undergrad there, worked with Michael Gomez under him at, at NYU. You know, this it's really black Catholicism. And what the wolf is writing is it ain't white Catholicism. It's Africanizing the ways of knowing that come in. So I'm sitting there watching these rituals. And after the rituals, I'm thinking, you know, everybody there, you know, the people, the black, uh, you know, everybody there, the priests, you know, obviously all the attendants and the sisters and the ushers and the sister playing the music. I told the sister, I said, I was good till you hit that good old good one. At that point, a little tear came out because every time, you know, I sit there and this is the cat, this is the black Catholics, right? They got the liturgy, they got the stuff they're going to sing. And then she, she broke out with, I've had some good days. Oh, now, why would you do that? I've had some hills to climb. Yeah, some of y'all, some of y'all know about that. Go back and look at that one we did on the black church, Henry Louis Gates. Then what you talking about? I've had some lonely days and some sleepless nights. I'm like, that is a Catholic church. Now we done had the literature. Oh, but when I look around. Come on now. And I think things over. All of my good days. Come on, why would you play this? Oh, outweigh my bad days. Some of y'all heard Clay Evans and them sing that song in Chicago. I won't complain. Y'all already know. Look at y'all. Yeah, she got me. Of course she got me. I mean, I'm like, yo, oh, come on now. Anyway, this is the Black Catholic Church bringing in that cultural meaning making. But those rituals, not only are they African in their comedic origin, many of them, they're also African when they get re-Africanized after the Portuguese and Spanish introduce it to those Africans in the West Coast and they bring that stuff to the Western Hemisphere. Fascinated by that. So after we're finishing, I'm leaving the church. I'm getting ready to go over to the metro, get on a train and go back, come back out this way. I, you got to love black people. The humor. We just came out of this ritual. And I asked one of the ladies, I said, it's been a long time since I've been in a Catholic church, but that was very black. And she said, yep, that's all I got to remember about the Catholic church. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And they really started laughing. Up and down. Why? You got to stand up. Liturgy. Get on your knees. Okay. Up, up and down, up and down, up and down. The levity. Serious Africans in ways of knowing, but we always leverage the humor. Because that's our people. This high church. But it's our people, which means it ain't going to be that high. We're going to bring it somewhere. <laughs> Come on now. Kim Delaney, you better stop now. You Chicago Negroes out there singing that. I won't complain. Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm. Put that in the Catholic liturgy. I've had some good days. <laughs> anyway, Olive Taylor, Olive Augusta Taylor is a whole legend at Howard University. One of her students who spoke yesterday, and shout out to my dear friends my sister friends, one of the great master teachers who walks the earth, the great Elizabeth Clark Lewis, 
director for many years, continuing director of public history at Howard University. If you run into a black park ranger at, Char at Colonel Charles Young's house in Wilberforce or Mary McClune, Clyde Bethune's Negro Council house in Washington, D.C., Carter G. Woodson's house here in Washington, D.C., if you run into somebody at the New York African burial ground and they came out of a program where they learned public history at the college level, you are probably talking with a student of or somebody who knows a student of or been touched by a student of Elizabeth Clark Lewis. Her, her partnership with the National Park Service over the years is nothing short of extraordinary. Um, Sean Bivens, who, who brought these programs up from Mobile, Alabama. Shout out to Mobile, Alabama. Again, Black Catholics. It's Mardi Gras season. I know y'all sick of that king cake. I asked my students. I said, it's Mardi Gras now. Yes, yes, yes. It's Mardi Gras. So what does that mean? That means y'all start eating that king cake. Where is that book? Um, it just came out. An excellent, actually, treatment. Oh, I thought I had. Oh, here we go. Because you know, Mardi Gras got the oldest, the oldest tradition of Mardi Gras is not in uh in New Orleans, it's in Mobile. First decade of the 18th century, like 1703 or something like that. So, you know, king cake, you bake that cake with a rich cake, part cinnamon, crunch, and coffee, and then you put the little baby in there, represent the baby Jesus. Look, I'm not gonna, you know, we, we got a couple more weeks we can go through Mardi Gras. Because Fat Tuesday is near the end. I think we got a couple of weeks for Fat Tuesday. Some of y'all put the date in. Y'all know what uh yeah. Clay Evans. Yes, sir. Come on, Julia. Come on. All right, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. Cause see, in a minute, then I'm thinking about all them great choirs that had the signature uh versions of these songs. He started giving me, I'll get on Charles G. Hay Charles, Charles G. Hayes and his choir. Jesus can work it out if you let him. Another story, another day. Carnival in Alabama, Isabel Machado. This is a new book that came out University. I think it's University. Yeah, University Press of Mississippi. I wish it was Jackson State University Press, but you know. Uh, Carnival in Alabama, Marked Bodies and Invented Traditions in Mobile. This is the oldest Mardi Gras. And she's going through the, the ways of knowing and the culture, meaning making and movement and memory of African people in, in this book. And it's very important to understand that because uh, we were talking about, look, here go the kid, the royal, the royal courts of the Blacks. Right. And then you had the white people got their court, separate courts. It's segregated in Mobile to this day, not by law, by custom. In fact, uh, Professor Hunter and I were talking. If you go on Netflix, there's a great documentary, which in some ways I prefer to Descendant about the Clotilda, which has its own story. But there is a there is a documentary called The Order of Myths, The Order of Myths. Which tells the story of the Mobile Mardi Gras and integrates in it the Clotilda. But you see how race continues to be the shaping paradigm in Mobile, as it is in the United States, as it is in the world in, two, in so many ways. But it's Catholic. As y'all know, you know, they got a parade every day, every week. You got a parade for a different saint. Second line is out there. The band is out there. Well, Mobile, you know, in New Orleans and where they do Mardi Gras, which is the outer edge of the Catholic world in some ways, because it's carnival season everywhere from Brazil all through the Caribbean and just licks the outer edge of North America. When you come to Mobile, when you come to Savannah, when you come to New Orleans, this is all Africana reabsorbed into the so into the governance formations we have, the cultural meaning making, the ways of knowing, the movement and memory, which allow us and fortify us as we navigate this social structure. Again, Africana studies has to have a framework. Otherwise, we just talk about interest in black stuff and that don't free us. That seventh notion, the overarching concept. So I'm in the Catholic joint with black people, with a sister who was a Catholic her whole life, being funeralized, 
And I'm sitting there, her son, Cameron Williams, her grandchildren, three grandchildren there. And Clarence Lee sent me in there to say something. The genius of Olive Augusta Taylor, Dr. Taylor, who I suspect there's probably more than a few people in here who had never heard that name before. The genius of Olive Taylor was, is that her teaching was governance teaching. So I got up there, the mistress of ceremonies for the moment, another one of my very good friends, a brilliant sister. You ever around the campus of Morgan State University, look her up, a master archivist, a memory keeper, has written and talked and lectured and built around concepts of black institutions from the black church forward. Black women in particular has written about Mary McLeod Bethune and Carter G. Woodson, uh, a student of uh, Elizabeth Clark Lewis, uh, my friend, Dr. Ida Jones, Ida Jones, who is the chief archivist at Morgan State University, uh, for a long time was on staff at the Moreland Spingarn Research Center. Let me talk about Spingarn too in a minute. What you think, Spingarn? Should I talk about you? Yeah, I thought I was thinking about you earlier. Because Olive Taylor, I'm going to connect it to the NAACP in a minute since we had the NAACP birth weekend. But, you know, Sean Bivens brought up the programs from Mobile, another student not only of Dr. Taylor, but you know, Dr. Clark Lewis, she brought up the programs. And so there were some, some of these students who were there in this genealogy, Joe Harris, the great scholar of the African diaspora who was served on the faculty with Dr. Taylor was there. Olive Taylor retired two years before I came to Harris. She retired in 1988 at 64 years old, young to retire. I came in, in 2000, but her echo was there. Her spirit was there. And the legend of Olive Taylor, who didn't come back to campus a whole lot. I'd have teased her out in 2013 to come for a ritual, but she didn't come back to campus. Again, some, some complicated histories and relationships at HBCUs between the people they should elevate the most. Probably because of their proximity to that second and larger impulse that Cedric Robinson is writing about, which is why I got up and I said, you know, I'm here because Clarence Lee couldn't be here and I follow protocol. So he asked me to come in his stead and I would, and I read some words from him, but I started with a quote from her. This is something that Dr. Olive Taylor said to a audience at another university. It was reported in the Daily Nebraskan, University of Nebraska in 1970. Actually, February 1970. So that would be 53 years ago this month. She said, I've been accused of inciting revolution. Let me pause here. All of us who are teachers, homeschool, community center, K-12, university, this woman here, Let's spend, let's spend a couple of minutes with her today. She said, I've been accused of inciting revolution. They say everybody who closes down Howard University came out of my class. <laughs> Which is true, she says. But, she says, I didn't do it. I'm only trying to get them to think critically. That's what Ida Taylor said in 1970. She was two years past the great student takeover, take over the administration building in 1968, which led to the hiring of Andrew Billingsley. Still, he and Mama Amy walked the earth. Billingsley would be 95, 96 
in his next birthday in April. Uh, in the administration of James Cheek, who was hired at the students, said, we love James Neighbor, but you got to go. It's time to retire, brother. You ran your lap with Brown versus Board of Education. You did that. It's all beautiful. But now we need black power. We need black studies. We need Howard to be a black university. I have a job at, at, at Howard University because there's a department. There's a department because those students did what they did. And the students that did what they did were able to do what they do in part because you were Brown. Some of y'all, um, Bermuda, the prime, former prime minister of Bermuda, was an undergraduate student, leader of the student body at that time, student body president. And when he got overwhelmed with this movement of over a thousand students that took over the administration building, he needed help. And who stepped in to help him? A young professor named Olive Taylor, who was already a legend, not a legend for writing, not a legend for publishing books and articles, a legend for teaching, who taught over the arc of her career at Howard University which started technically when she came in 1951 as an undergraduate student, graduating in 1955, returning to the university around 1962 or three to teach and staying at the university in a formal position until 1998, almost 40 years. According to Elizabeth Clark Lewis yesterday, she said by her estimate, she puts her, the number of students she taught directly to around 30,000 students. Dr. Joe Harris, a legend in the field of black diaspora studies, said that when he was the chairman of the Department of History, Olive Taylor, who was the first woman, first black woman, first woman of African descent to earn a PhD and teach in the faculty at Howard University with a PhD that was earned from Howard University. All three of her degrees were from Howard University. All three were in history. He said, every semester I would have to fight Olive Taylor because she would sign every override. Meaning that if the, if the, if the room held 40, there's another 20 or 30 out there trying to get in and she would let them all in. I'm gonna say, Dr. Taylor, there's no room. And she said, I won't turn them away. Now, if you, did you hear this name for the first time, but we know the name W.B. Du Bois, no shade, know the name of all the people who say they excluded from the AP curriculum, but who in fact are still in the primary documents and don't know the name Olive Augusta Taylor, then what I'm saying is we, there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that the proximity to whiteness has made us favor the thing we shouldn't be privileging, even as we want to fight the fight on all fronts. The thing we must always center is the people. And this is a woman who had all the degrees, all the prestige, all, and she spent her whole life grounded in the people so i read that quote and then i mentioned the comments of another professor al tony gilmore it's a name you should know a l dash tony g-i-l-m-o-r-e al tony gilmore he's a former uh um chief historian for the national education association brilliant brother he friends with Larry Crow. That's how I was able to contact Al Tony Gilmore, brother Gilmore, through Larry, because him and Larry know each other. Larry interviewed him for the History Makers many years ago, and they maintained. I mean, to hear brothers like that, to hear brothers and sisters like that have conversation, it is a blessing without, uh, without end. So I asked him. He was Olive Taylor's office mate. In 1973, beginning in 1973, and he was on that faculty for a while at Howard University, the history department. Now, Tony said, uh, Gilmore said that, you know, she wrote endless numbers of recommendations. During homecoming, the students would overflow the office and be in the hall just to come see her. He said she was, and in fact, mm, I wish I could find Al Tony's uh, remarks. Al Tony said, uh, I wish I could pull them up quickly. In fact, 
I will. In fact, let me do that because it's going to tie. Uh, hold on. Let me see if I can find. Oh, no, I'll never be able to find it quickly. I, I, I mean, from memory, he said, you know, we were on faculty with some of the giants. You can imagine many of the giants. And and she had been trained by many of the giants. When Ala Taylor was at Howard, E. Franklin Frazier was on that faculty. John Hope Franklin was on that faculty. These are these are her teachers. You understand Emmett Dorsey in political science on that faculty. She took classes with all of them. And then when she rejoined, when she joined the faculty, you're talking about an era when you have Joe Harris, when you have Ukon Iya, when you have uh, uh, Marie Brow, who did the early Afro-Latino stuff in terms of writing. She's on that. And then Tony Gilmore said all of them on the campus, in the department, she was by far the best teacher. By far. Yeah, we got that. Thank y'all for putting her name in the chat. And then I read what Dean Lee, because I asked him, well, Dean, I'll be glad. He said, well, you know, you say what you want. I said, no, I want to know what you want me to say. And he said, tell her son, tell Cameron, she was an African queen. She was black. She knew it. She believed in the possibility of our people. She believed in the potential of our people. And she did not cut any corners. She was severe in her work and she was loving in her work at the same time. And that's why she was beloved. Now that I've set the stage, let me talk a little bit about this. Oh, by the way, let me pause here because I see folk in the chat are connecting as we always do in Nubian. This is really directed at all of us. If you had a teacher like that, if you have a teacher like that, now is the time to encourage them to tell their story or to tell their story if they're an ancestor. I'm not talking about looking for a book, book contract with a university press. No, I'm saying record those stories. And as we continue to develop, Professor Hunter has already laid out a vision of a publishing space. And we've got the people who can do it across the board. And, you know, her team alone. We got to tell these stories. And I'm going to say less about that in the context of Dr. Taylor, because I already got something in the works now, because what, what I'm not going to do, because the thing that resonates with me about Olive Taylor is this is the work itself the teaching and learning work so let me talk about her a little bit as we find a wind up for the day she was born november the 30th 1933 in dc i'm gonna pause there for a second didn't get too far did i yeah because guess what the NACP was uh founded in 1909 but in 1933 august that year two of the cats one of the cats joel spingon who was a founder of the NACP. this is a book about him just came out him and his brother joel and arthur spingon uh, the Spengarn brothers, white privilege, Jewish heritage, and the struggle for racial equality, Catherine Chaddock, who also wrote the book on Richard Greener, actually, which we've talked about Greener before. Um, Greener, of course, Bell DeCosta Green's father. But anyway, uh, a reason I raise this is because the Spengarn brothers were two of the white people who founded the NAACP. And there's a whole story there we probably had to do a separate conversation about. But Joel Spengarn, in August of 1933, held a conference of Black people at his estate in New York called Troutbeck. It's called the Amenia Conference. Some of y'all know about that Amenia Conference. Three months later, Olive Taylor was born. But the reason I bring this up, this is actually a picture of the Amenia Conference during that period. There are people who were in that picture who taught Olive Taylor. Emmett Dorsey was there. Frank Frazier was there. In fact, 33 people attended with a median age of 30. Among them were familiar and highly regarded individuals, including Ralph Bunch, E. Franklin Frazier, Charles Hamilton Houston, and Lewis Redding, Joel Spingarn, Walter White, Roy Wilkins, and W.E.B. Du Bois represented the MLACP. Why did I bring that up? Otto Taylor knew many of these people. 
Charlie Houston made transition in 1950, April 1950, at Freedman's Hospital, now Howard University Hospital. At that time, Olive Taylor was entering her uh, second semester of her junior year, about to enter her senior year. No, 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 no. Yeah, her senior, entering her senior year, second semester, junior year, at the same school Charlie Houston, Charles Hamilton Houston graduated from. Charlie Houston was a graduate of Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, as was Olive Taylor. And I'm sitting there yesterday with elders who went to Dunbar. Just that damn, here goes Dunbar again. And so I'm saying, you know, now she had Frazier, Dorsey and them. She had them as professors. In fact, there's a great book on the Amenia Conference because as I was looking at this new Spingarn book, it sent me to one, which I really do think is a very important book. It's called Born Along the Color Line. The 1933 Amenia Conference and the Rise of a National Civil Rights Movement by Eben Miller. It's interesting because he goes through the intergenerational conflicts and tensions they're having. Because by then, Du Bois is considered an old man. In 1933, Du Bois is uh, 68, 78, 88, 98, 08, 18, 28. He's 65. It's crazy. And so a bunch of them are looking, they in their 30s. They looking at him like, man, you move too slow. And the debate at that meeting was like the debate at the first Amenia Conference in 1916, the year after Booker T. Washington died, when the Spengarn says that, you know, we can quash this beef. We need to, we pass Booker T. Washington. Let's get these people, let's get these black people up here with these white people. We're going to have this interracial conversation. But I want to cultivate the black leaders to help them and help themselves. I mean, sound familiar? Sound familiar? Anyway, because Washington's gone, and I think we can get past a lot of our differences. Kelly Miller and them were at that meeting in 1916. That was the first immediate conference. The second one, 1933, held three months before our, uh, Olivia, um, I'm sorry, Olive Taylor was born, includes people who would pass the baton to her. And the underlying thread is this tension between a black elite trying to do for the race and the masses of black people who ain't got no contact with them people or the white people who are funding and had them up and had them, you know, have a nice meal and let's have debate and conversation. Now go back and this is what we think. And this is what you think. There'll be tensions in between because the spin guards ain't on the great page all the time. In fact, I first encountered the spin guards in Harold Cruz's book, plural but equal. And then uh, mm, 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 B. Joyce Ross on Moorfield's story and the NAACP. Lewis Marshall, who was one of their friends, who was a, a judge and, and a lawyer, is, you know, saying one thing in the black community and another in other communities. And Harold Cruz is like, the problem we have is we don't have an independent place to stand. So people who think they're helping us might be helping and they may not be helping. In fact, Joel Spingarn's brother, Arthur, donated his books and started the Moreland Spingarn collection at Howard University with Jesse Moreland's books and Arthur Spingarn's book. But both these guys had military uh, appointments during World War I. And there's evidence that they were reporting back to the War Department on some of the activity of these Black leaders. So in other words, we have to have our own space for very important reasons. But at any rate, I'm talking about in this in the context of Olive Taylor, because when she comes into the world in 1933, she is born into a family in which she is the fourth generation. Beginning with her grandfather. Grandfather, father, her. No, fourth generation, great-grandfather to attend Howard University. She says the only school I wanted to go to, she was born 1933. She went to Dean Wood Elementary School, black community, enrolled at Dunbar High School, 1947. That's the same year Jack Roosevelt Robinson integrated. 
white major league baseball formerly because before that they had some nine whites but they would call them indians and stuff like you know we ain't gonna get into that that's the same year that francis cecil sumner called by some the father of black psychology got sick he's shoveling snow in his driveway heart attack couldn't come back to work he became an ancestor and they brought in this young brother who had also a dunbar graduate who i knew i served on the faculty with who made transition a couple of years ago that's the great leslie hicks See, I'm bringing this up because not in the context of Howard University alone, but in the context of black institutions. If you had a teacher that touched you, that brought you into the profession, like so many of us in this room, it's time to write their stories. Because what I'm sick of is offering stories of, quote unquote, black excellence to white institutions as earrings and bracelets on the, uh, the body of whiteness. Hell no, because this is how these stories get lost or brought into this silly narrative. This is the genius of American democracy. American democracy has no genius. We absorb you into us and thereby help transform you. Ask Burke Backrack about his songs. The point is that she, in 1947, the same year, her friend that she served on the faculty for many years of, Leslie Hicks, is ahead of her at Dunbar, ahead of her at Howard University, gets his PhD, is already coming to teach psychology where he will stay for, a, for two generations. I used to sit next to Hicks at the faculty meeting and watch him just, 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 just destroy pretentious people. She goes to Dunbar. She graduates in 1951. I didn't have the 51 yearbook. I'm still tracking Dunbar High School. This is the 52 yearbook. So I missed her by a year so far. Liberani. Dunbar book. And then she's at Howard. She graduates in 55. This is the 54 yearbook. And they don't put the undergrads in. So I'm looking for a picture in the 54 yearbook, but she's not in the 54 yearbook, not even in the clubs, because she was a faithful member of the history club and filed for Theta, which is the history fraternity in, in the social structure history department. Goes on. Let me say this. Says she talked about how she was determined that she would one day enter Howard, the capstone in June 51. She graduated high school. She applied for admission to Howard University, was accepted. She knew she had come home in the, in the fall of that year. She embarked in a whole new world. She got a bachelor's of arts in history in 1955 and then worked in the fashion industry in New York for a fashion firm, Abraham and Strauss, because she was going to go into academics. But she she see fly, right? Everybody who talked about her yesterday, Wade Henderson, who was the head of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, was her student at Howard University. He said we was all in love with her. And she writes about and talked about and taught about and was interviewed about the challenge she had as a woman who people found very beautiful and attractive, who was also brilliant and a master teacher a woman who was brilliant and a master teacher and also somebody people found attractive. How do you navigate that? She said, Elsie Lewis helped me with that. Uh, uh, another member of the faculty who was older than her and the great Lorraine Williams helped me understand that when you move through a space, you got to move through a space in a particular way. And Dr. Clark Lewis, that sister who is a titan in herself who took the baton from Dr. Taylor, said that on the day I defended my dissertation, she was on my committee. And the day before, she brought me to the house and said, OK, let's pick out every stitch of clothing you're going to wear right down to the accessories. Why? Because there's a certain way you must present yourself in the world. That's how I was taught. And when you look at the <laughs> when you look at the pages of the Liberani man, these these young people going to uh they going to high school straight up dressed. Here's some of their teachers, right? I mean, got the pearls on. She had pearls on yesterday, and they buried her in her full academic regalia. Let me tell y'all something about black people, okay? Look, basketball team, but. You know, they still got they they playing basketball, so they got their basketball clothes on. But when you don't see them in their basketball clothes, 
they got on. Here they are at the Columbia Press Scholastic Association, Dunbar High School. I could show y'all pictures and pictures, but I'm not gonna do that because we're I'm looking at the clock and I want to keep this tight. So let's let's keep going. She <laughs> she came back to Howard. She worked in New York. She in the fashion industry. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm an academic. I'm coming back. She got her master's degree in American history, U.S. history, in 1959. Her thesis was titled Cases of Discrimination Brought Before the National Labor Relations Board Involving the Negro, 1935 to 1941. This is the period the NAACP is fighting on whether or not they're going to move past the legal strategies into action. This is what Bunch and Frazier and them, her teachers ultimately, would be pushing Du Bois, not even Du Bois, pushing the white people, pushing Spengarn and them. Spengarn already kind of there, but many of the white people in the NAACP were going to file law legal cases. And that's what we know the NAACP about. In fact, let me just pause here and show this book very quickly if you can get your hands on it. This book was published back at the 100th anniversary of the NAACP in 2009, but I like it because there's a there's a bookshelf of books on the NAACP. But I like this book because it's mostly pictures and it's got, you know, wow, it's Larry Doby and them cleaning the branch of the NAACP. You know, I'm just taking random pictures here. Here they are from the 1940s with Spengarn medalist winners. You know, there's a Ty Duncan, the baritone there in Honolulu. Here's the Detroit chapter in 1937. This is a major picture book NAACP put out called NAACP 100, celebrating a century, 100 years in pictures. It goes through decade by decade, and it talks about all of the, here, look, see the founders? Where the black people at? Where the party at? <laughs> and they party ain't there. Look at these, Mary White Ovington and all them, you know, this is the cover of The Crisis from 1977. So you got Mary Church Terrell in there, you got W.E.B. Du Bois in there, but here's Dr. Du Bois with the Silent March. Remember they had the Silent March up Fifth Avenue? This is a picture you get to see a lot. But this was a white organization with a handful of Negroes sprinkled in. We, we've talked about that before, the whole absorbing in some ways of the, um, the Niagara movement. But and Robinson writes about this. We're going to read about that in chapter five on Monday night when he says, at the founding meeting, the founding meeting of NSAP, probably Ida Wells. And when you cross-reference that with her biography and then what, uh, what's my sister's name? Um, Ida, Sword Among Lions. Somebody put it in the chat. Paula Giddings writes, he goes, Kathy knows Paula Giddings. She was up there in Massachusetts with her. Uh, out of Wells saying, hey, they're giving us, a, they, they, they're selling us out again. They're betraying us, these white friends of ours. It's real debate at the founding of the NAACP. But Dr. Taylor writes her master's thesis on discrimination cases be brought before the National Labor Relations Board involving the Negro, 35 to 41. This is where Charlie Houston, during this period, this is a book by Risa Galuboff, who is at the University of Virginia called The Lost Promise of Civil Rights, where she says, uh, where he says, you've got to look at the cases that the NBCP is filing because there's a real rift because, you know, Houston and them are saying we must now also pursue class-based cases. Black people should have, black or white, listen to Joe Biden Monday night, not only a right to a job, but you should put a floor under them. Cap and insulin at $35 a dose when it only costs you 10 to $13 a dose to make and you charge hundreds of dollars, you shouldn't have somebody who's getting ready to go fight, I guess, Randy Macho Man Savage at WWF uh, with their white fur coat on. You shouldn't have her in the back saying, liar, liar, yeah, because what? who are you representing? Oh, by, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene might look like she had a WWF fight, but she's a millionaire. <laughs> so, you know, it really don't impact her. 
But Charlie Houston and them are saying we should be approaching this economic agenda in the courts the same way we're approaching the, the, the racial one. But what Harold Cruz writes about in Plural But Equal and many other people is that many people in NAACP who were not black and some who were black were pushing back saying, no, we got to push race, desegregation, desegregation, desegregation. What Cedric Robinson writes about is while they're pushing that, that is that serves more the black elite. But the NAACP increasingly becomes black as you need membership and the membership is black. And that's the Negroes on the ground like Mega Evers, son of Mount Bayou, Mississippi. Self-determination. Who's like, yeah, I'm gonna push back against Roy Wilkins and them at the national level and Walter White and them. And they wasn't, you know, they didn't see eye to eye on that. He said, no, 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 we gonna fight. I'm from a place where black people grow their food, black people got their own hospital, the Knights and Daughters of Tabor. We got, yeah. And it was founded by a brother whose daddy ran Jefferson Davis' brother plantation called Hurricane in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Whatever the politics of Isaiah Montgomery, his father, Benjamin Montgomery, his brothers who came and did that work as well. When they started Mount Bayou, that's a different, you know, that hit different, as young people were saying. Mega Evers came out of that, and that NAACP is the rank and file people. Ask Dory Ladner about that. And so I'm saying all that to say that Dr. Taylor gets her master's thesis at Howard in 1963, writing about the fight for economic justice during that period of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. About that same time, she decided to provide part-time assistance to her brother, Anthony Tony Taylor, who had recently purchased the Bohemian Caverns Club in Northwest Washington, D.C. Did y'all know? Y'all know the Bohemian Caverns. Many of y'all know about uh, Bohemian Caverns. Did you know that her brother, Tony, was the guy who bought the club? And in fact, if you hear, I'm just going to read this. The restaurant and jazz club were located on the southeast corner of the intersection of 11th. The building's still there, but it's no longer, you know, gentrification. U Street, white as hell these days, unfortunately. So Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, so many others. Nina Simone, Miles Davis, many, many. In 1964, Ramsey Lewis recorded a critically and commercially successful album, live album. Y'all know that album. The Ramsey Lewis Trio at Bohemian Caverns. I'm one of the in crowd. Yeah, the in crowd. Y'all know that song, the in crowd, live at Bohemian Caverns? Who knows that song? This version helped Lewis's Bohemian Caverns album become a blueprint for later live jazz recordings and was reviewed as an album, quote, with material on this set that was very ambitious. Here's the sentence. Lewis is recording the in crowd. Ramsey Lewis, y'all know that recording. Play it when we get off. Was his breakthrough hit in the United States. Dr. Olive Taylor's voice can be heard on the recording as she continuously shouted out, in crowd, in crowd, go listen to it. You'll hear Octavia, but uh, I keep on saying Octavia Butler, it's Olive Taylor, the old student. She came back to Howard the year before that in 62, I'm sorry, 63, and got in the PhD program and kept teaching. And Ewart Brown, that's why I talk about Ewart Brown in 19, March 1968 when they took over the uh, students, had the protest rally in front of Frederick Douglass and then took over the A building. The, uh, the, the, the obituary writer writes, the students remained in the A building until they felt that their demands were at least being addressed, if not met. Brown was leading nearly a thousand students who relied on his leadership. However, something was missing. He faced a dilemma in which he was ill-prepared. The young student council president was in dire need of guidance. He needed a mentor and a confidant. I would say a jegna. However, as Grace would have it, the young leader found a much-needed mentor, a much-needed jegna in Dr. Olive A. Taylor. She got her PhD shortly thereafter. A young and trusted faculty member who taught in the history department at the time. She single-handedly and meticulously guided the young leader and nearly a thousand students through the entire protest movement. She said, 
Every time somebody take over the administration building, they said they came out of my class. And that's true, but I didn't tell them what to do. I'm just encouraging them to think. Those teachers who are teaching that AP class who are behind the cotton curtain and enemy lines, who the people beefing about what's in and not in the curriculum, maybe not thinking about first. What happens when you're in a space where people accuse faculty all the time of manipulating students? And that's, that is, as, uh, as I heard from several HBCU presidents in conversation about this, and administrators. Anybody use student to fight your fight? That's despicable. Now you fight your fight. And if young people come to you for advice, you tell them, well, this is what I see, but I'm not gonna tell you what to do. That's what Ella Baker did with SNCC. That's what I've done my whole life. They done hung so many student protests on me that I just laugh now. Cause I'm like, you really think I was in that? If I was in it, you'd been gone. I'm not telling them what to do and, I'm, and I refuse to cross any lines. And you should be out of it too. Why are you trying to manipulate students? But anyway, Olive Taylor was there for them though. And they tried to hang that reputation on her. And guess what? She ate it and embraced it with her whole heart. Fourth generation Howard, Paul Lawrence Dunbar graduate. Multilingual, brilliant. And she walk in the room. Sometimes she come in, they would she come in with a fur coat, take her fur cut off, start, start teaching. Legal history. She knew legal history code. Way Henderson said she 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 I wanted to, you know, I thought I want to make social change. She walked me through the possibilities, and that's what I decided I'm going to law school. Made lawyers she produced without herself being a lawyer. It goes on. Let's wind it close. The university met a number of demands. Absolutely. Even today, nearly 55 years later, former students, including former student council president Europe Brown Jr., still reminisce about their protest movement. They never forgotten how she sustained peace on that campus how she brought peace between students and administration and the major role she played in their lives. That is often comes at a cost because Olive Augusta Taylor has nothing named for her at Howard University. Her publications are the living publications of her students and their students and their students and their students. Goes on. She finished that PhD. This is her dissertation. The Protestant Episcopal Church and the Negro in Washington, D.C. A history of the Protestant Episcopal Church and its nexus to the black population from the 17th century through the 19th century. The black church. The history of the black church isn't to be written so you can show white people you smart and each other after you get an award. Every institution, church, school, fraternal sorority organization, neighborhood club, street corner quartet, every one of our institutions needs the living memory passed from mouth to ear. Needs someone to inscribe that memory. This is why Kathy and, and Key, what y'all doing at Claflin is leading the way. That's why we have narrative, a whole repository, an archive. That's what I've been saying since we started. Get those stories, put those stories here. In addition to wherever else they are, here for safekeeping because the archive is very important. Every year, students clamor for seats in Dr. Taylor's Frederick Douglass Hall classes. In the 37 years she taught at Howard, Professor Taylor became one of the institution's legends. Most notably, as students struggled for their voices to be heard, she was a professor who participated in student uprisings and simultaneously taught history classes. In Negro History Bulletin, Sophia Abdulrahman wrote, quote, she managed and was always able to balance the two, working tirelessly to bring social change and equity for students. She says, I was good in my work and students and faculty recognized my peerless contribution to Howard University. I'm gonna wind this up in a second. I just wanna mention a few other things about her because she won a number of awards. After she retired, she was particularly, uh, she was active in these organizations before, but as I said, the Association for Afro-American Life and History, the Association of Black Women Historians. Um, Dr. Watkins is, was an officer in that uh, organization. Dr. Jones, Ida Jones, I mentioned as well. Phi Alpha Theta, of course. Um, 
so many important national council of negro women um of course the alumni associations and, and i want to close with this on olive taylor because i'm just giving you a glimpse you know she talked about the fact all the time that she was black without apology black without apology and and what does that mean and how does that inform how we should be thinking about ourselves and in this space, not only in this space, but in our lives. She said, y'all think the Negro has made progress. The Negro hadn't made progress. She didn't like the term Afro either. She says, you know, we African, African Americans. Dean Lee, one of the things he said was she saw herself as a proud African woman. She was an African queen. She saw herself and she said, we have a responsibility to contribute to the society we're in, but to contribute on our own terms. That goes for us globally. She said, Blacks have not arrived anywhere. Remember, she graduates from Howard the year that Brown versus Board of Education 2 was decided. She was a member of the student body at Howard when Charlie Houston was trained. Well, she just she came just after Houston passed, but the guy who was president, Howard Morkai Johnson, and then when they took over the administration building, that was more uh, that was James Neighbor who argued Brown versus Board of Education. She was responsible for training thousands of students. And she talked about the fact that this institution, Howard University in her mind at that time, represented the best, the best that our people had to offer intellectually in the United States of America. I'm raising all this, like I said, as, as we kind of close for now, because the life of Olive Taylor teaches us that when we ground ourselves in the governance formation, the people, then whatever skills we have acquired in close proximity to the social structure formations we find ourselves in are the most useful. We are building this space, this narrative space, this Nubia space. My, you know, me as a first generation college student, um, very proud, who didn't know whether I wanted to play baseball or play music, who went to Tennessee State University and it created the possibilities for me to be able to become a professional teacher. By the way, shout out to the Urban Hymnal. You know, I don't really count much for them Grammys, but since Tennessee State brought two home, maybe it'll encourage some young person to say they want to go to a HBCU where the marching band or got two Grammys. For those of you who like the Grammys, and I ain't mad at the Grammys. I'm just saying at that point, they got it right. They, they pulled out two. I didn't see any of it, but, you know, I was told and I was in that band as a freshman. I was a freshman in the Tennessee State University, aristocrat of bands, the best band. Now I'm going to start a beef in the chat. I already know. I know Grandma going to say you the best. I'm going to know Howard going to say you the best. Norfolk State going to say you the best. I know they just had the Battle of the Bands in Atlanta last Saturday. I wish I could have been there in the dome to watch that because my boys and girls did it again. I already know. But guess what? Everybody who says their band is the best is correct. That's all you can say. It's one HBC with a bunch of different locations, but the most important black educational institution is the one we're in right now. Olive Taylor spent her life and career in a black institution. Her son, Cameron's a graduate of Howard. He's fifth generation and them grandbabies probably gonna be the sixth generation. But guess what? Everybody can come here. Everybody comes here. It ain't 50 stacks to go a year to go to where we are now. This depends entirely on us raise those master teachers while they're arguing about advanced placement course raise the teachers that are teaching that course while the people arguing about whether they name in it or not in the curriculum framework raise those people and then next week 
we will continue in the conversation specifically as we continue in during February to deal with this question of curriculum instruction. We're going to come back to the themes in that course and walk through some of the some of the history and comparative work. So we'll start from there. Amen. <laughs> Oliver Augusta Taylor, thank you. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to do something on Dunbar High School. We really are. We're going to have to do a whole lesson just on Dunbar High School because too much greatness came out of Dunbar for us to not go down the lineage. Yes. And, and of course she came, she came through Dunbar when it was a different kind of Dunbar. The one now, those young people, and this, we give our, we give respect to our young sister, Nubia Garima and her people at the Carter G. Wilson Black Studies Academy at Dunbar. Professor Hunter, I suspect a little bit down the road, we might want some of them young people to hang out with us in some, in some structured formations because that's the Dunbar of today and they need to connect to this Dunbar. Maybe we'll let them take the lead in this. They could write that history. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're raising, right? We're passing yeah. the baton so that the other generations can get it. I'm so grateful to you in this space and thank you for, for erecting and, and honoring a name that I didn't know until today, so... Most people yeah. don't know. Most people at Howard don't know. I asked the wait. Oh my God! Don't go anywhere. I, this is this is. I promise. This is a very quick story. I when I found out Dean Lee wanted me to come, I told my students Thursday. Of course, none of them had heard of Dr. Taylor. None of them. A woman who her colleague, Dr. Eleanor Trailer, who I'm very close with, Jagna, still here, still down, living off 16th Street in D.C. She said. She calls her the mythological Oliver because she really is a myth. I mean, she, you know, but but she's real. There was one person in the room. This is my hip hop class. I was just telling them, you know, a brother who just hanging out because she used to do that. You anybody can come to my class. Anybody can come to her class. They, he, he was in the back. He said, "I took a class with Doctor Taylor, uh, Doctor Taylor, Doctor Taylor." I said, "Really?" He said, I said, "Tell him then. Tell us." He said. I, I learned about history. He started talking about, he said, she would come in and say, I know y'all think y'all saw the story in Roots, but let me tell you the real story. And then she would walk through world history and then bring it to the United States, then constitutional history. He said this, finally. He said, I remember one day she came in, took off her fur, set her fur down, her. fly now. She got this right. She said, let me tell y'all something. You could be on the most beautiful train, the most beautiful train that ever existed. It could be blowing diamonds out of the smokestack it could be riding down a track of gold but if that motherfucker is going the wrong way <laughs> you need to get off he said i never forgot he said she would drive she comes like a sailor apparently in the middle of the multilingual including cussing the reason i didn't edit that please forgive me children with no trigger warning is because the impact he said changed my life just that phrase he said it could be the most beautiful trip but if that is going down the wrong way you need to get off that train <laughs> how many of us <laughs> so that was all of taylor <laughs> yes oh man okay 